Hi, everyone, and welcome again to yet another podcast on my Gotti Mitzbez 22 Podbean podcast and YouTube video channel. Uh, I want to continue today with my conversation about uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider's new catechism, Credo, Compendium of the Catholic Faith. Last week, I interviewed a theologian from Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, Dr. Matthew Ramage, professor of theology and integral ecology there, and he offered a, a fairly negative assessment of this uh, catechism. But now I turn to someone I've had on the show before a couple of times, uh, someone who is very detailed oriented as a theologian uh, with regard to documents and and uh, sources. And I very much appreciate uh, that about his scholarship. And that is Dr. Eduardo Echeverria of the Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. Uh, and we're going to discuss once again, as I said, Credo. So welcome, Dr. Echeverria. Thank you for uh, coming on today. Larry, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. Always appreciate your scholarship and your insights. Um, so uh, let's let's get into the, the Credo here. Let's what uh, what what do you want to say? Right, right, right. Let's just well, get right into it. Well, I mean, I think there's there's much in this book that is that's just a, a restating of right. in, in a different format of the the Universal Catechism. Okay, but but there are other things that, uh, uh, particularly those matters that deal with Vatican II. Uh, on religious liberty, ecumenism, interreligious dialogue, um, yeah, and even uh, um, what is Vatican II? Um, I, I, I think I sent you a, a, a text about another a, a set of uh, interviews that uh, that the bishop did uh, a couple of years back. It, it came out in a book, and it was uh, in, in conversations with Diane Mont Montagna. Montagna. Of yeah, the yeah. register, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, but uh, let let's let let's just start, if you if 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 you if you will, with uh, just the structure of of the catechism, because I I think I said to you that uh, what what I noted was that the moral life is part two, uh, and uh, unlike the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Universal Catechism, the moral life in Christ is part three. And it's preceded by the um, the life of grace, sacra the sacraments, right. uh, and and all of that, and and that seemed to me uh, to be uh, a problem because it 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 could generate a sense of uh, if you will, sort of works righteousness, and um, sure. Whereas if the the catechism. And Thomas as well locates the question of the moral life in light of the the larger question: What is the chief end of man? Right. You know, so it seems to me you have to locate the the question of the moral life in the light of that question: What is the chief end of man? Uh, before you then go on uh, to discuss. Yeah, I mean, Aquinas wants to know what is the nature of human happiness. <laughs> right. You know, right. and and then goes on from there. Well, right. that that's a big question. What is the well, nature it is a, of human it is a happiness? Big question. You know, so I mean, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be overly pedantic about it, but I mean, I just seems to me that there's this part three here should have been should have been part two, where he the the liturgy, the sacramental life of the church, 
and so on, uh, and then uh, get into the the moral life and which he you know the whole the the nature of the moral act and conscience and and all of those things. So it seems to me that uh, the one should uh, the the way it's set up is. Uh, is 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 for me problematic but that's like i said i don't yeah. want to be pedantic about well, it it's 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 a it's a fine uh point to make i mean and, and we are splitting some hairs uh right. and the question though is was it a deliberate choice to put it in second place before the discussion of grace or was it just a kind right. of in it inadvertence but who knows maybe he he just didn't even think that deeply about oh, it right, but it, right. it you know yeah. it is problem it is problematic though because in the light of the Second Vatican Council and the universal catechism of the church, you know, the moral life is now seen not as a standalone thing that we can get at simply through pure reason, although we can, we can get, get at certain right. universal ethics and all oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that somehow or another, then grace sort of just builds on that ex extrinsically. Uh, and, and so one That's can exactly get... exactly right. That's exactly right. You see, when in fact, in part three of the catechism, where it talks about the, the, the you know, the, the, the relationship, for instance, between the natural virtues, the cardinal virtues and the theological right. virtues, it's very clear that the cardinal, that the supernatural virtues are not just an add-on. They're not just a plus factor, but that they actually are the foundation, it says, of the moral life, you see. Yeah, and so the, yeah. the, those supernatural virtues properly order the 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 natural virtues, the natural ones, for, yeah, to their to their the, to the yes to the ends of the chief end of man. Yeah. You see? So so you're right. I mean, you could you could get the idea that somehow, you know, you could actually attain the chief end of man by just uh, living out uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Uh, I remember in a. What's his name? Eric Mascal. I don't know. He was an Anglican Thomist. Sure. Yeah. And he, he said at one point, uh, he said um, on this relationship of nature and grace, he said, well, some people presented it uh, in such a way that you would have thought that the ends of man could be attained through Aristotle's ethics. But it would have been better, of course, if you had, you know, <laughs> grace and so on. But but it's extrinsic. It's not essential. Now he rejected that because right. he thought that nature, grace, renews nature from within. Sure, uh, it's not a plus yeah. factor. It's not an add-on. And too often, uh, that's the way it's been presented, even with respect to the sacraments. I mean, I remember, you know, we used to. My wife and I used to, and we when we lived in Northwest Missouri, we we were sort of like the lead couple for uh, people getting married. And of course, uh, they didn't really understand. You'd, you'd ask the person, the couple who came to you, and you'd ask, "Well, why do you want to get, why do you want to get married in the church?" And of course, they they didn't really understand because they didn't understand what a, what a Christian marriage was. You see, mm -hmm. and they they treated it in terms of this plus factor and et cetera. Yeah. So it, so it can it, it can. Uh, it can uh, it can open you to a can of worms about uh, the relationship between nature and so brain. yeah so and we're not I'm let's be clear we're not accusing Bishop Schneider no, of no. falling into that error and no, no, no. in fact when you read the third part of his catechism I think he makes these points that we're making right rather rather clear right. Uh, but so it's kind of unfortunate in terms of the ordering but let's move right. on okay um, let's move on let's 
Let, let's go on to the to the okay. Uh, eventually, we'll get to the religious liberty uh, thing. And, and but can uh, I ask you one preliminary sure. question before? Please, please. Uh, the the one thing that sticks out in my mind that I want you to address before we get into more specific particulars is why write another catechism at all when we already have a universal catechism? Does that not imply that Bishop Schneider believes that there's something deficient in the universal catechism? Unquestionably. Yes. Why would you write, uh, Why, like you say, why would you write another catechism? Uh, and that's the way it's been received. We finally have a, a good, you know, a good catechism. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. how Sophia Press, even in their press releases, you know, yeah, finally, yeah. finally, finally. A, a sort of an unvarnished, you know, catechism with nothing but pure truth in it. No, no, and, no, no. Uh, by no, implication, I, as opposed I, to that other really nasty one that we've been that we've had for a while. No, I, I think it I, as you as you and I know you will agree with this. It's because of all these other matters, religious liberty. Right. So now let's get into those. OK, so let's look. Let's look initially. Uh, this is in in paragraph uh, 71, 72 and 73, where he where he talks about. um Vatican II, um, and he says, oh yes, before we go to 72, uh, he in paragraph, it's better to use page numbers because, because the paragraph numbers change. Uh, so the it's page 93. Page 93. Yeah, that's true, because they do change. They do on change, the because on page of the section, yeah. Exactly, because on the, the, the paragraph I want to talk about is 666. But yeah, so there it is. It's page 93 where he asks, what was the approach of the Second Vatican Council? Yes. This council's basic approach was partly determined by a shift from primacy being given to the content of the faith to the methods of its explanation or proclamation. Now, I, I, I don't understand what he's talking about. Because the, the, the council did not give priority to, uh, well, let's put it this way. I always quote, you know, John the 23rd's opening address to the council where he makes that distinction uh, between, you know, the, the, the doctrinal truths and their formulations. And then you always have that subordinate clause, uh, 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 you know, keeping the same yes. meaning, same judgment. Right. John the 23rd is referring us back to Vatican I. Who and Vatican I is referring us to Vincent of Lorenz. That's right. And uh, Vincent of Lorenz, there, it's all content oriented. Uh, it's not, or so I don't know what he means to the method of yes, of course. Uh, the council wanted to, uh, uh, that's partly what aggiornamento was about, that you want to, although aggiornamento was not an isolated motive for renewal, I always say, it refer, you have to take. Um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Resorcement has a normative priority, it seems to me, over uh, aggiornamento. So it does. Yes. I think Sorry. that's key. I, I, you know, and to place that it's in a proper historical context, when John the Twenty Third says we want to take the same content, but maybe put it in a language more suitable to the modern uh, reader or, or believer. It's it's that's a clear swipe at sort of the neo-scholastic language that right. had been dominant in the church. Let's put it Absolutely in his context. Not. He's talking about the, this turgid neo-scholastic. A lot of the neo-scholastic stuff was very, very, very good. 
But the Pope right. is not wrong. I mean, talk to any seminarian formed in that era right. or any priest who had to read that stuff. And, and, you know, it just was really awful, dense stuff to wade through. And it was just not it's not a language that the church felt at that time was suitable to evangelization anymore. And so right. the, the emphasis was going to be on content. Bishop Schneider is wrong. The council did focus on content as well as method. So well, I'm and sorry. The mere fact, I'm that, the mere fact that, he, that uh, John the 23rd is referring us back to Vatican I, right. Right. Uh, De Filius, uh, and then De Filius uh, on that passage is referring us to Vincent of Lorenz. And Vincent's question has to do with, uh, is, there, is there no progress in theology, no development in theology or religion, he says. And of course, he said, he distinguishes development or progress from change. Change is when one thing becomes something else, he says. But development, progress, of course, uh, of course there's progress, but it has to be within the determinate limits of the dogma, uh, uh, keeping the right. same meaning and the same judgment, you know, idem sensu, idem, se, idem que sententia, right, you know, all right. that. So it, no, seems, it, it seems to me ahead. here there's just a fundamental um, uh, misunderstanding. Uh, some prior, Such priority given to method history, which is mutable and so-called pastoral approach, resulted in certain doctrinally unclear or ambiguous affirmations in the churches, in the council's documents. That's what they always say. Yeah, they always say that. And I we're here once again, we're discussing this book not just as a theology book to be read, and it can be read with some benefit. Right. But what is its value specifically as what it's presenting itself as? A catechism. A, catechism. a universal And what are we to make of an auxiliary bishop from Kazakhstan taking upon himself the authority to write a catechism that effectively repudiates the doctrinal statements of an ecumenical council? Right. No, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there, there can be no other. Well, it'd be it'd be interesting if we could have a conversation with him. But uh, thus far, it seems to me uh, there's no other reason why he saw the need to do this other than he wanted to repudiate uh, these religious liberty um, and even the the council as a whole in terms of what. As he says here, it's approach. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't later on. So on page 133. Uh, in, in paragraph 71, 72 and 73, he does. Um, well, he quotes Vincent in 72. By what certain criteria may we recognize the authentic Catholic tradition? And he says there. <laughs> this is what uh, uh, Father Guarino uh, in his his book on Vincent, uh, you know, call, which is, he calls this the 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 first rule, the can, the first canon of Vincent, and everybody formulates this. You know, uh, the criteria formulated by Vincent of Lorenz, what has been taught always, everywhere, and by all, that becomes the criteria. Ratzinger himself says that that this criteria is no longer adequate to express the relationship between the deposit of faith and, and, and doctrinal development, he says. Now, Ratzinger, in my view, I love him, but he was wrong about Vincent because Vincent also has a second canon. Yes. And the, sec the second canon uh, 
uh, in fact, is cited by uh, by Bishop Schneider in uh, paragraph seventy three, and this is the this is the paragraph I was just alluding to from Vincent, where Vincent, uh, uh, you know, he asked the question whether there is progress in religion and so on. And yeah. then he says, may understand. Yes, of course, he says in the commentatorium. He says, uh, um, may, uh, may understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. This is directly from, uh, I, I don't know why he doesn't yeah. put in quotation marks there, because that's Vincent. Uh, may understanding, knowledge, and wisdom increase as ages and centuries roll along and greatly and vigorously flourish in each and all, in the individual and the whole church, but but this only in its own proper kind. Vincent says, but this and only in its own proper dogma, within the limits of the dogma. Yeah. That is to say, I don't accept this translation uh, uh, in this, uh, the, uh, what's, uh, what's uh, the, I'm trying to, my mind is going. Uh, Denzinger, of course, has a, 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 which is in the English, it's, it was edited yeah. by Bob Fustigi. Um but in the same doctrine, the same meaning and the same judgment. Yeah. The same meaning and the same judgment. I don't understand here the way that this is translated, although this is one of the several translations. Yeah. Uh, but I, I accept Denzinger. And also Father Kamanchak uh, translates it. Uh, yeah. Uh, By the way, that section you quoted is within the quotation marks because the quote begins further up. That meaning of the sacred dogmas is ever to be maintained, which has once been declared by Holy Mother Church, and so on. Uh, right, but there, uh, it's uh, I'd have to go and look, but I think the beginning of that quotation mark is from Vatican One, and Vatican uh, One. Is oh, I see what you mean. So he's sort of strung together a couple of okay things here that should. That's not what be I strung. mean. So, yeah, but he doesn't okay. he doesn't connect this to Vatican Two. No, he doesn't. Vatican Two. Remember, we just started off. There's John the 23rd in his opening address. He's citing, uh, he makes that, he has that famous, uh, where he makes the distinction between the, the proper propositional truths of faith and their formulations, and then the subordinate clause, keeping the same meaning and the same judgment, referring us back to Vincent, sorry, referring That's us right. back to Vatican I, and Vatican I is referring us to Vincent. So it seems to me that if you're going to, if you're going to give an interpretation of Vatican II, you, you have to take this very seriously. And that it's the it's the transmission of the, the content of faith integrally. That's right. Yeah. That's what so John the, the 23rd says. The the you know the yeah. integrity of the Catholic faith and so on. Yeah, uh, John the 23rd did not call the council to suddenly change from talking about the immutable truths of revelation as expressed in dogma to suddenly now just talking about the immutable truths of historical vicissitudes no, and no, changing no, no. culture. Let's just all context. Speaking as if John the 23rd was an uber contextual theologian <laughs> appealing to some uber subjectivist understanding of experience and so on. That is retrojecting back into John the 23rd and the aims of the council. Uh, modern theological problematics that just were not at play no, in the no, council. No. And you do you do have uh, theologians who've tried that. Right. So big di discussion about whether John the 23rd actually made the distinction between the truths of faith and their and their expressions keeping the same meaning and the same judgment. And yeah. uh, I remember 
reading a review of uh, Peter Hebelway's book on uh, on John the Twenty Third, and it was reviewed by a Dominican theologian, and he refuted uh, Hebelway's view, which said, "Oh, John the Twenty Third never made that distinction. You didn't say that." Okay, the 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 the, the, uh, the priest, the Dominican priest, the uh, theologian. He said, we know he said it because we, there's a recording of it. <laughs> there's a recording, he said. So yeah, yeah. So that's a whole discussion. John Finnis and I had a conversation about that because he because I wrote this article on uh, this essay on on Vincent of Lorenz in this volume um, uh, on on uh, uh, what is it? Authority in Catholic theology and and had a lot of great essays well, and, and so on. So. Let's put it this way. Whether he knows it or not, uh, uh, Bishop Schneider, with all due respect to, with, with him, he, you know, he's a smart man, et cetera, et cetera. He's just wrong about the council. And he's probably a good bishop. I mean, that, oh, yeah, that, that, I'm sure and, he a, is. And, a, and a good man. But I think he's just very I think he is responding to the current crisis in the church in a way that so many others are as well, I think, in in too overreactive a way to the council and so on. I think that's what's going on here. But to get back to this point at hand, in many ways, the, Bishop Schneider's accusation that the council privileged method over content, which led to ambiguities, is refuted by himself when later on in another play, and we're going to get into this in the catechism, he says, here are some things the council got wrong. So in other words, he's going to be disputing content claims that right, the council right. actually made. All right? right. So it's not so much. This is a kind of a clever rhetorical ploy he's making. Where so all, the method led to ambiguities only to later say these are not ambiguities. They're simply errors that need to be corrected. Right. Uh, right. Errors in content that need right. to be corrected. So the right. council is dealing with content. So let's let's true. get into some of that content. OK, well, let's turn to the the matter of uh, religious liberty and. uh I think I sent you that link on page 28. He defines for us uh, yeah. how is man free, he asks. Yeah. And it seems to me, you know, uh, the, the, the philosophical tradition has made uh, distinctions between libertarian freedom uh, and soft and hard determinism. Now, we don't have to get into the distinction between soft and hard determinism. The bishop in in on page two twenty eight he rejects uh, determinism. Okay, and then but his definition of how is man free is really libertarian freedom. Libertarian freedom. Libertarian freedom, as I said to you in a, in that text, free choice in the sense of libertarian free will, in which man has free choices equally of good and evil. The agent himself is the cause of his. Of his uh, of his choice. Now, if that's if he if he accepts libertarian freedom, if we go to page one hundred and four, where he discusses uh, this is one of the questions: What's the nature of religious freedom? Uh, he says man enjoys a psychological freedom such that he is able to reject belief in God who reveals Himself. So, I guess yeah. I don't. I don't even understand what does it mean to to refer to that as uh, psychological freedom. What what do you think? Yeah, I remember when I read that, I thought, what does he mean by psychological freedom? 
I mean, with regard to the earlier comment about his definition of freedom is essentially, well, we, we use our intellect and we choose things. And I think, okay. The power of contrary choice. Yeah. I mean, that and leaves this choose- impression of the good and the evil and the, and the in-between simply present themselves to us as co-equal choices and we choose. And we choose. But that, but that is a very, like you said, it's a libertarian understanding of now, whether or not he meant it that way, I think it would be good to have the bishop in front of us to explain himself. Maybe he's maybe he's simply trying in that first part to emphasize that he rejects determinism. Right. And so, yeah, we we have this freedom to choose amongst various things. So we're not determinists. Right. And yet, once again, it shows a flaw in the book as a catechism, because as a catechism, it should make clear our freedom is oriented towards the good as per Aquinas. Right. Right. Okay, so then he goes on, and this this leads you to the conclusion that he rejects religious liberty, uh, not only as a as a as a, a matter of a, a civil right, uh, but also as a matter of um, as a moral right. Let's 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 say. So he says, however, man is bound by the most serious commandment to embrace divine revelation. Therefore, he has the moral duty to obey God, and so is deprived of moral freedom in this regard. Indeed, man has the physical ability to sin, but he has the gravest moral duty to abstain from sin. Now, here I would say, uh, I would say in the first place, well, of course, man can misuse his freedom. He can abuse his freedom. Remember, St. Paul says you've been called to freedom. Yeah. Uh, and so freedom, yes, of course. No, Nobody thinks that when... Um, you know, when Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, choose this day between life and death, clearly he's not suggesting, well, the choices are equal. Um, yeah. You, know, you, you yeah. can find, if you choose, if you, wh- whichever, whichever one you choose, you're going to have life. No, of course not, because your freedom can be abused. But clearly, uh, and so you have, in that respect, a moral duty to obey God, uh, but whether you're deprived of moral freedom in this regard doesn't make sense to me because the only way you can hold someone accountable that and i bring it back to libertarian freedom the power of contrary choice between true and truth and falsehood between good and evil is necessary in order to be held morally accountable for making the wrong choice if you're not free to make the the wrong choice how can you be held accountable uh, for that choice um, right, right. Um, and then, of course, he rejects it as a uh, as a as a human right, as a civil right. Um, and he doesn't think that uh, you know that in matters of religion, uh, it, it doesn't establish the title of a lawful right. Let me let me put it. Th- this is how I explain because he's clearly he doesn't agree with dignitatis humani. No, he rejects it. He rejects it. So here's here's my view on that. Um, Dignitatis Humani um, holds that error has no rights. Correct. It's erroneous. It's it's people who hold erroneous beliefs that have rights. Correct. At the same time, you know, I I say to my students, you know, going down the road here, there's a Buddhist temple. It used to be a Baptist church. <laughs> okay. I don't know why the Buddhists, the Buddhists still kept the cross, 
when they took over the, the, the cruise. Anyway, the point is, I say to them, look, we live in a we live in a, a, a country, a culture that says that the Buddhist has uh, the freedom to be a Buddhist. Right. But that doesn't mean that the beliefs that he holds to be true are in fact true, nor right. does it mean that he's actually justified in holding those beliefs. So the the the, the uh, I think I think the uh, dignitatis humani I think assumes that there is a forum, a public forum where there can be uh, you can engage in a conversation uh, about these matters, and remember. I, I said to you in a message that uh, that dignitatis humani uh, holds that there are certain intellectual obligations attached to the act of believing. Yes. Uh, chief of these obligations is to seek the truth and to reject falsehood. Yes. Now, the, the, here's where the, the traditionalist and Bishop Schneider's critique, I, I think, really uh, comes into play, because I think what they want to say is that dig Dignitatis Humanae indeed affirms, it says explicitly, all church teaching about, you know, the relationship between church and state is still intact. We're not changing that. And we still have this moral obligation to seek the truth of God and governments still have the moral obligation to seek the truth of God. So they're not in any way, shape or form uh, saying, well, a confessional state of some kind is impossible now, and we must we must adopt modern notions of government as purely secular. It does not say that. Mm -hmm. Instead, what it is affirming is this. Even if we have a confessional state of some kind, however you want to conceive it, whatever that confessional state does, it must allow for religious freedom. Right? It has to contain within it on the basis of the dignity of human beings, some right. allowance for human freedom. Now, the Schneider, Bishop Schneiders of the world come along and say, we don't really we don't really like that. OK, so yeah. the, what is it then that that they're advocating? That would be what I would then ask. OK, right. in your in your version of a confessional state. Are you saying then that it that it's we ought to outlaw those Buddhists down the street like you were just talking about? I I think that that's uh, um, what what was the, the the traditional defense of religious liberty? Uh, it didn't give uh, uh, it didn't give any a full recognition in a in a free society. Right. I think they just don't. I think I think that that what you just said is probably entailed by the position that they take. But here, here's 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 a just to uh, chime in here with the matter of uh, the church-state relation. I think that Vatican II shifted from what uh, uh, what I would call uh, following uh, what's his name Maritain, uh the old Christendom is an ecclesiastically unified culture. Well, that's a dead right. end. There is no, yeah. no, no ecclesia. But the new Christendom is the sanctified laity engaged in the transformation of the world uh, through, uh, through uh, in, in the light of uh, Christian principles, right. the lordship of Christ. And then I always refer us back to chapters four and five of Lumen Gentium, the calling of the laity, the call to holiness, so the church is still engaged in the culture, transforming the culture uh, yes. 
uh, agents of transformation, uh, agents that uh, you sustaining the integrity of marriage, family life, uh, education. Why did the council write a decree on on Christian on on, on Christian education? Huh? Uh, and and subsequent almost a dozen documents, which, yeah. which of course nobody, no educators, Catholic educators read subsequent documents from the Congregation for Education that deal with all varied aspects. Because the church still wants us to in as a as the the church still wants us to engage the culture as a sanctified laity. So in that respect, I think since there is no ecclesiastical an ecclesiastical unity of culture, an ecclesial unity, that's the old Christendom. I think that's a dead end. That's what they want. They want the old Christendom. That's right. And Vatican II embraces the new Christendom. And here's the other thing. I think I said to you, Archbishop Lefebvre, he wrote a book called Dethroning Christ because he thought that Dignitatis Humani, which he signed, but later on, yeah. I guess, decided it yeah. wasn't he. Had, but uh, he, 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 he argued there that Dignitatis Humani really dethrones the lordship of Christ. So they can't, they don't see how to reconcile religious liberty with the lordship of Christ, because they think that you're doing what does he say in in, in on one o five in paragraph seven hundred and fifty two? They think that the false notion of religious freedom makes the individual conscience a source of rights and duties in religious matters. I I, I don't I don't understand that that to me is a total a false reading of. Uh, of, yeah, uh, yeah, because it, it implies that just because we're allowing for religious freedom, that somehow now there aren't objective sources of of, of revelation and, and, and the concepts of the moral good. Human rights, of, uh, we hold these truths. I mean, that was... Yeah, never, yeah never, I mean, uh, yes. But it, it goes to show that the, what their fear is. Their fear is that all of this is going to lead to a runaway subjectivism, relativism, religious indifference. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? That... Those are not unfounded fears. Those are legitimate. And many council fathers who were, you know, Dignitatis Humanae was very contentious. And it was right. contentious precisely because many of the more conservative council fathers worried that modern iterations of religious freedom were actually deep down expressions of religious indifferentism and relativism. Absolutely. And uh, therefore, for this great ecumenical body to embrace religious freedom, even if that's a good idea, maybe it's not really practically a good idea because maybe it then greenlights all of this nonsense that we see out in the culture. So I, in other words, I want to steel man here their fear that and, and that their fear of, of a religiously indifferent culture is something that even John Paul and Benedict, you know, dictatorship of Absolutely. relativism. It's all true. But but the question is, you know, there, as you pointed out, there, there simply can you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle here. The Christendom of that kind is dead. And the church has to deal pastorally with the reality of this massively pluralistic culture. And so I love what you just said. It is now Vatican II has now shifted gears and said, no, the faith should not be coerced by the state. The faith must rise up 
from below through the exercising of a holiness within the laity. That's exactly. got to be that's got to be the way forward. And maybe just maybe this is an insight of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit through the modern world, despite its indifferentism, is goading us to understand that a coerced faith is not a genuine faith. Right, right. So that's why you have to have it to go back to the religious liberty uh, definition. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, uh, and he doesn't link it, but if, if Bishop Schneider were to have linked his answer to the question, how is man free, which seems to me, again, to be a libertarian notion of freedom, to the question of religious liberty that right. he raises here, yeah. uh, it seems to me there's the power of contrary choice. And, you know, uh, Calvin denied the power of contrary choice, okay, because of sin. Uh, yeah. But it seems to me, it seems to me that uh, the only way to hold a man accountable for choosing X is if he's free. Accountability presupposes the freedom to make choices, contrary choices. Doesn't mean that they're equally valid choices, of course not. Um, but you have to be able to. Uh, there has to be the, the possibility of, of a kind of. Uh, uh, John Hick talked about a, an epistemic distance, yeah, an epistemic yeah. freedom that you have to have. Otherwise, it seems to me you can't hold somebody accountable for, for choosing to be, become a Buddhist. Now, of course, to bring this into the conversation, yes, in my view, Francis has contributed to this religious indifferentism. Yes. In this respect. Yes, of course, he says, when you come into conversation, into religious conversation, you you, br you have to bring in, there's no reason why you can't bring in the full content of your, the Christian faith and so on. But what he's also done, and I've, we, we've talked about this before, is that he says you have to withdraw your claims to absolute truth, to unique validity, and so yeah. on. And so if you if you accept the way that Francis engages in interreligious dialogue, there never will be a need for you to say there's no interreligious apologetics, uh, firstly, and you will never there will never be a need for you to say, this is why I'm not a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim. Uh, right. Because I think that this is the other part of it, that there are uh, there are incompatible truth claims made there. Uh, yeah. regarding Christianity and, and Islam, let's say. Uh, if Islam, if Christianity is true with respect to its central claims about the incarnation, the atoning work of Christ, then Islam can't be true. But you have to consider, though, that the the, the, the necessity of interreligious apologetics, uh, I don't know if you ever read uh, Paul Griffith's book, yeah. in, in, you know, so... It was written a few years back, but he was oh, about 20 years ago now. But he was on, trying to yeah. defend in the era where apologetics had been thrown out the window as kind of triumphalism and all of that. Uh, he said, no, there's noia, the necessity of interreligious apologetics. But that yeah. necessity is built on the recognition that there are incompatible truth claims here. And also it's built, uh, and even the documents, you know, uh, uh, dialogue and proclamation and, and other, other documents from the International Theological Commission uh, or from the Pontifical Council for uh, Interreligious uh, Relations, uh, there's a place where, in fact, it does, it does say, uh, there, yes, there are 
uh, elements of uh, from Nostratate, you know, goodness and and so on. But it goes on to, in fact, uh, I, I thought I had it here. But it goes on to say so. There is a general, to use my uh, the theological terms, there's general revelation, which is God's revelation of Himself in and through the works of creation. Huh? God has not left Himself without witness. Uh, we know that Romans 1, Romans 2 regarding the moral law, uh, and so on. Um, but that that's distinct from special revelation, which is historical, the redeeming acts of God uh, throughout redemptive history. Uh, that revelation, redemptive history, that special revelation is uh, historical. It's also verbal, Dave Evans yeah. says. Yeah. And it's salvific. General revelation is not salvific. So it seems to me that when you read a text, a religious text, whether it's Muslim, Quran, whatever, uh, you're not surprised that that God has not left himself without witness in those texts. And so you can find, uh, you know, uh, truth and goodness and all of that. But of course, uh, you can't stay at that level. No, you have to move on. You have and to the, move on to, and, to, to talk about the competing truth claims here and and the pope speaks a lot about a distinction between proselytizing and evangelizing without a great deal of clarity i mean obviously there is a distinction to be made between those two things right. one's obnoxious one is not <laughs> and right. and so i'm going to take him at face value to say okay but he still believes in evangelization but then you're right he says things like we need to withdraw our claims to absolute truth and absolute validity. Now, what I want to know is this, when he says things like that, and we're not off topic here because it pertains to what, no, no, Bishop, it's it's what Bishop Schneider's concern is perhaps here, right? Uh, what he's writing against. And and so and, and next we can get into interreligious dialogue and ecumenism in this catechism. But the thing, the question that I would have for Pope Francis when he says we need to withdraw these these claims, does he mean simply this, that is obviously something that I think is legitimate, where temporarily, as one begins uh, a conversation, one brackets, okay, you bracket the sort of absolute truth claim that you're making, set it aside temporarily as you first begin by exploring common ground, what we have in common, establishing, in a sense, the friendship in, in an open and honest conversation, and then gradually bring in the truth claims. Does he mean that a simple bracketing of truth claims for the sake of rhetoric and pedagogy? Or does he simply mean that that those absolute truth claims are, are invalid and one should never make them? That that's the burning question for well, me. I think and I, again, I've written about this in my the second edition of my Francis book. He rejects, uh, he's skeptical about absolute truth. Seems truth, that way, yes. Truth in itself. He, he's skeptical about that. And that's because he thinks that truth, ultimately, it's this, it's this false dilemma that Aquinas exposed as specious between propositions and reality, you know. And right. um, uh, 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 Pope Francis rejects absolute truth claims because he thinks... I'm looking. No, it's not here. Anyway, he thinks that uh, uh, ultimately uh, uh, truth is a relationship, he says. It's a relationship. Yeah. yeah. And I say, I expand on this because he's replying to a question 
that uh, you know that atheist, the late atheist Scalafario, raised and asked him whether whether he believed that truth was absolute and et cetera, et cetera. And he says uh, he says to him, well, in the first place, he says, I don't I don't speak of uh, of absolute truth. He says. Because that assumes that truth exists in itself and truth is a relationship. And then I say, well, the Pope here is confusing the conditions under which I come to know that something is true. And that can involve all of those right. contexts, the ecclesial context, right. etc., and the conditions that make something true. Right, right. And that's reality. If the but Pope is I, simply... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you see, but the, but the Pope, in fact... And again, this is something that you read and then you think, well, does he know what he's saying here? When he talks about, uh, you know, doctrinal formulas being mere theories and ideas. Oh, I know. So that leads you to think, I ask in one place, uh, I ask, does that, does, does that mean that he thinks that Nicaea is just an idea? It's just a formulation, uh, Chalcedon, if we're talking about creeds and all of those things. But, but even... Um, you know, doctrines, dogmas. So he he diminishes the significance of uh, of propositional truth. He diminishes the. He's skeptical about speaking about absolute truth. Uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, uh, Andrew Lacutus had. When I had said that, I rarely get into these discussions on on Facebook, but I had said it at one point. And then he said to me, oh, the Pope is just saying that um, you have to exercise a certain humility, uh, you know, with respect to what you know. And I say, I say, the Pope emphasizes so much the inadequacy of our theological formulations that in the end, yeah. you don't really know whether inadequacy of expression means inability to express uh, doctrinal truth, the truth about dogmas, and so on. And all of that, it seems to me, contributes to when you get into a discussion about religious, uh, interreligious dialogue, unlike Benedict, he will never bring you to the place where you say, I'm a Christian, and I think I'm a Christian for these reasons. Yes. And these are objective reasons. I mean, I uh, if you if you're a realist and you hold these things to be true, then there's got to be incompatibility there between well, you yeah. and the other dude, and and so on. So you have to be able to say this is why I'm not a Buddhist, or this is why I'm not a Hindu, or whatever. But he'll never bring you to that point because no, of the, all of these assumptions know, that are built I, into his. I don't want to de devolve down into you know Andrew Lacutus is not here. No, 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 no. I, you know, yeah, I'm and, and you know, and he and he's a he's a great guy. Like I've met him in yeah, person. Yeah. He's he's a great guy. But yeah, I think yeah. he's wrong about this. I mean, yeah. he really I mean, he comes from a long line of locutuses that have right. that have a, a a real pedigree for defending the papacy. And no, he's, no, he's carrying and, he, and he's smart and he's carrying on that papal defense legacy of his family. But I think that has led him to, I think, paper over some of these glaring deficiencies in Pope Francis's theology, because it's very clear what Pope Francis has done. And once again, to get back to Bishop Schneider's credo to contextualize, I think 
the legitimacy of Bishop Schneider's fear, as opposed to his rejection of dignitatis humanae, I think that we can divide those two things. Yes, I think can. his fear of religious indifferentism in the church is a real one. That's I right. think he's wrong to see dignitatis humanae as the cause of that. Let's just put right. it that way. Well, Pope, no, Francis, I Pope Francis, I think, so privileges the apophatic moment within our knowledge of God you know, Augustine's line, si comprehendis non es Deus, if you can comprehend that it's not God. Right. But what he fails to acknowledge is that within, we're not Buddhists, all right? This is why we're right. not In Christianity, the apophatic moment of God is not this and he's not that is within a moment within a larger, what we call in theology, cataphatic moment, meaning right. God has revealed to us certain right. things about the divine trinitarian persons that we can right. know and that right. we can know with certain with a certain yes vaguely as through you know through a glass darkly and all that but still we can know them on some level right exactly. and, and 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 that we can bring epistemic certitude right. with us into right. our conversations with other religions that what we know about god we hold with certainty because we believe that it is god who has revealed it right and it's and if you interject there you know, a realist view of truth that then then that those propositions are true because what they assert is in fact the case about objective reality, about objective divine reality. Now, here's where we can link it back to Vincent, because of course, of course, and I've had this out with various people, of course, uh, epistemic humility means that there's always more to know. You can deepen your understanding of the truths that you've already grasped, huh? but that deepening has to be consistent with what we already know to be the case. It can't be, um, and that's that's Vincent's point, you know, idem sensu, idem que sententia. Huh? Uh, it has to be within those boundaries. There are determinate limits. And so you continue, yes, yes, you can. Right. Yeah. We, we can learn. Of course we can learn. Yeah, uh, of course, and of course we, uh, you know, I mean, I per, in my own view, for instance, uh, John Paul II's uh, the theology of the body, and in uh, in in part two of the theology of the body, where he lays out the sacrament of marriage, he now makes it clear, and I consider that not that it was always presupposed, but now it's explicitly stated, it's made explicit, and that is that sexual differentiation is a fundamental prerequisite for the two to become one flesh. And so the validity of marriage can't have a valid marriage if there isn't sexual difference. So it's not, it's, yes, uh, you know, uh, love is the is the in integrating principle of marriage, but you if you distinguish between the ethical or covenantal communion, communion that is marriage, you can't separate it from sexual difference you can't separate it no you can't organic, and that's biotic, very, very all, all that kind of stuff and so it seems to me i always tell my students when you if you're if the lord if the lord makes you a priest i said when you preach about marriage don't preach about don't merely preach about love you have to preach about the whole the whole structure of marriage and john paul ii i think understood that already in in the mid 80s uh in these uh, wednesday audiences um, and so, um, yeah. so there, there can be, in other words, my point is there can be development even within the, the determinate boundaries of, uh, of dog. Yeah. 
so long yeah. as the your deepening your the understanding that you come to uh, is consistent with what you already know to be the case yeah and so it develops organically and, exactly. and wholesomely out of the uh, and and sometimes you know as I, I think it was cardinal newman pointed out sometimes the development of doctrine has to remember the principle you know that a butterfly looks very different from a caterpillar uh, mm -hmm. and, and 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 so the fact is sometimes doctrines develop in ways I mean, does the mustard tree look much like the mustard seed? No. Mm -hmm. So we have to set aside to a certain extent this this sort of common sense view. Well, this this new development of doctrine looks very different from the old one, and therefore it must be wrong. It must be an innovation. Right. It must be a novelty. Without well, first taking things. Yeah, and that's what he thinks. He thinks that's that the religious thinks. freedom stuff, the interreligious dialogue stuff, the inter uh, the ecumenical stuff, that these are all novelties that have no roots in the seedbed of tradition. Right. And mm -hmm. I think we both think that this is wrong. And it's kind of not a good thing for a, something that's purporting to be a catechism of the church to sort of put out there. I think it's a little bit irresponsible for a bishop right, right. You know, to put out there that these things are all disruptions of, of, of the tradition. So let's let's move on. Uh, just a moment. We've been talking about religious freedom. I want to talk about and we've sort of been talking that about interreligious dialogue as well here. But I want to talk about another hot button issue uh, that I talked about with Matthew Ramage as well. But I'm perhaps it needs further clarification. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has written an article on this uh, that people have sent to me and Peter sent it to me, which is Bishop Schneider's claim that you do not have full human dignity until you are baptized. Right. Let's let's talk about that. OK, so to me, that presupposes a full. Who am I? I'm not a bishop. But to me, it presupposes a false understanding of the relationship between nature, sin and grace. Yeah. Um the uh, just to take as an example, the catechism, when it talks about the sacrament of marriage, it doesn't begin with uh, the redemptive order, if I could put it that way. It begins with the order of creation. Marriage is grounded in the order of creation. It refers us back like Jesus did in Mark 10 to the creation text of Genesis 1:27, Genesis 2:24, uh, and so on. So, so from the order of creation, but then it goes on to say marriage in the regime of sin. So, yes, of course, the marriage has been affected by sin. Human nature has been affected by sin. There's no area of human life that's unaffected by sin. There are the noetic influences of sin, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is the case. But then, so one presumes by virtue of being created in the image of God, you, you, you have human dignity. That dignity may be tarnished because of sin uh, and, and, and so on. Yeah. But then... Grace is about the renewal of nature. It's within the order, the fallen order. It's not, in, remember I said earlier, it's not an add-on. It's not a plus factor. Uh, it's not that um, human nature is somehow, this, this, this actually, in one way of reading someone like Calvin, uh, I talk about this in a, my book on divine election. I have a chapter on Calvin. Um, he tries to maintain the Augustinian principle, which is that it's not nature that has been vitiated by sin. It's, in fact, nature still remains the same, the way God created it. But, of course, it's the practice of marriage, marriage as it's embodied. And so there needs to be a renewal, uh, a restoration 
of the original order of, of creation uh, regarding marriage. Again, that's why, you know, I often, uh, you know, uh, a book part one of the theology of the body, John Paul's theology of the body is in the beginning. But in the beginning, it doesn't refer to the garden. It's referring to the order of creation that has uh, that ha continues to have validity uh, in in terms of, uh, you know, the 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 man, God created man in his image, male and female, uh, the the two, the two, which two, well, male and female, because it's referring us back in Genesis 2.24, it's referring us back to 127. Therefore, the two shall become one flesh. Now, the Pope then goes on to talk about the, 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 the moral life and conscience and how sin has affected all of those things. Uh, but it seems to me that, that Bishop Schneider's understanding reflects a, a faulty view of the relationship between nature, uh, sin, and grace, the extent to which sin, he seems, again, he seems to suggest that, uh, that nature, in particular human dignity, has been totally obliterated by sin. It would seem to argue that, and it also, I wonder, I do wonder, uh, within the tra radical traditions, whatever you want to call it, the tr more traditionalist circles, there are some theological positions that would argue that Christ, for example, did not die for everyone. He merely died for the elect. Uh, that Christ in the, that in the incarnation did not unite himself completely with all human beings, but only with some human beings. And this then further then justifies a kind of massa damnata view right. of salvation, that right. most, most human beings are indeed damned and going to hell. It's just simply those few explicitly baptized Catholics, maybe a few other Christians that, that are going right, to make it on right, that narrow right. path to heaven. That's why we pray at Mass, you know, that Christ died for many and not for all. And so it seems to me that what Bishop Schneider is up to here is something along those lines. Am I, am I, am I barking I, at the wrong I, tree I, here? I think so. And here's here, too, is another area where it seems to me uh, he's just mistaken and your question has several several sort of strands to it one of of course the whole mass of the damnata thing has to do with original sin and the fall mm -hmm. uh, that's one area of discussion uh, the other area of discussion which i think is more important for us here and that is what does it mean to say that christ died for all men um now I think you need to distinguish, as the tradition has, uh, between the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work and its efficacy. Uh, is, yeah. is the work of Christ sufficient for the salvation of all men? Yes. Uh, are all men saved? No. Both Aquinas and also Trent, they say, you know, that, that you have to participate in the saving benefits of the cross in order to be saved. Now, it seems to me that um, that 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 distinction between sufficiency and efficacy is important, so that we don't you know we don't walk away and think well Christ only died for the elect in that sense for a, a, a certain number of people. No, Christ died for all men. The blood of Christ is sufficient for the salvation of all men. Are all men saved? No. Uh, so that means that the work of Christ is not efficacious 
for the salvation of all men because you have to participate in the saving benefits of the cross. And that's not an automatic participation. It's not like uh, it's not right. like it follows from saying that Christ died for all men, that therefore, in fact, all men are saved. No, we're not universalists, uh, etc. All of that. Uh, the the other thing it seems to me, aside from the question of uh, of uh, you know the fall and the extent in to the extent in which uh, yes we are children of Adam, there's a solidarity the Catechism says between uh, Adam it's it's the sin of Adam, and there's all kinds of this, we in that respect are children of Adam. And so we share in the sin of Adam. The question is, the question is, uh, how do we give an account of that? Uh, and and as I say, that's a that that's a more uh, a, a complicated question. I I wrote an article on that um, a, few, a couple of years back, uh, discussing uh, original sin. I was actually discussing the Catholic tradition in conversation with uh, the Reformed. Um, the canons of uh, the canons of Dort, which yeah. deal with the whole question of divine election and uh, and of course yeah. uh, and preterition that God passes over some, so it's negative reprobation. You'd have to defend negative, even if you don't defend positive reprobation, because negative reprobation that negative God reprobation simply doesn't do know, anything. He just yeah. sort of doesn't give you the grace. So the canons, it seemed to me, defend negative reprobation. And it seemed to me that that was incompatible with uh, with uh, what some people were trying to say at this conference that I was speaking at, that the canons actually want a, a sort of a full evangelization. It seems to me, uh, how do you evangelize if the person you're evangelizing doesn't have the grace to be receptive to the gospel? Yeah. Because God passed over him and blah, blah, well, blah. Well, I reject all of that. Yeah, and, yeah, of course. Of you know, course. and and uh, I don't think it's given to us to know. I mean, I, to me, it's sufficient what Paul says, that God wills the salvation of all. And that might be his antecedent will, and his consequent will is that right, that's that another way to defend it. Exactly. Has to has to include our appropriation. Right. Uh, and I might be a little more optimistic than you about whether or not most people uh, acquire that. But, never, but nevertheless, I wonder, with, to get back to Bishop Schneider's catechism, Obviously, there was once again to steal man his argument to steal man what it is that he's afraid of here to put it in this context. Right, right. Um, obviously, even my guy Hans Urs von Balthasar railed against an exaggerated sense of Karl Rahner's anonymous Christianity. Right, right. Such that everybody is already so engraced everywhere. Right outside of baptism and explicit faith, that there's just salvation oozing out of every corner. And there's really, I mean, and you really don't need to evangelize anymore. That evangelization is simply getting people to realize what they've already always believed anyway. Exactly. In, exactly. in, in, in implicitly. Now right, you're just, right. make, just making runner's language is what is unthematic is now thematic. Right, you now right. make it clear to them. Okay, so maybe you know, maybe Bishop Schneider is emphasizing this question of differences in human dignity because he wants to curtail that kind of runaway anonymous Christianity or a notion of of, of engracement outside the confines of the church that is so so extreme that there's no longer any distinction to between to be made between inside the church and outside the church. But I think my point would be this once again. I think there are better ways of articulating that concern 
than to say those who aren't baptized because of their sins have, have no longer have an inherent dignity as human beings. Well, that 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 of course uh, that's where we started this. That right. just betrays a, a, in my view, a mistaken understanding of nature, sin, and grace. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I it suggests that somehow nature, human nature, was somehow totally obliterated by the fall. And, and that's that, why I think, yeah, so much of this catechism is, and that's why I'm trying to steal man his argument in terms right. of what it is he fears. Right. I think so much of this catechism is reactive. Right. And it's not positively constructive, I think, in a way a catechism should be. It's reactive and negative, and that causes it to exaggerate certain things that like like this notion. There is no there is no There's inherent dignity after the fall that you Yeah. Well, this is, so uh, you end up almost with a total depravity kind of doctrine. Well, that's that, yes, but even the total depra even the totally depraved people thought that uh, like not just Calvin, but Calvin, he thought that you still had what he called the sensus divinitatis and et cetera. No, it's clearly, it's clearly an overreaction. Uh, I guess he thinks that the culture doesn't take, uh, the Catholic culture now doesn't take seriously sin. There's something to be said for that. I mean, there's a, uh, you remember Pius yeah. XII wrote that uh, the the greatest sin is the sense that we don't we no longer have a sin. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. all of those things, you know, what he's reacting against. We of course we live in a religiously indifferent culture. We live yeah. in an emotivist culture. Uh, uh, you know, moral subjectivism, et cetera, et cetera. All of that. We live in a culture where there's. Uh, you know, there's a salvation optimism. I mean, I remember a few years back, our, our the Archbishop of Detroit wrote a pastoral letter uh, uh, on funerals and why why don't Catholics come to funeral have funeral masses and all that, and uh, and I think it uh, he made some very good points. And I remember asking him, uh, don't you think that th there's something to the idea that uh, that uh, you know the diminishment of Catholics participating in in uh, in funerals and all that, that it has some praying for the dead, purgatory, et cetera, that it has something to do with a kind of a salvation optimism, universalism. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it does. Of course, everybody's going. I mean, good heavens. Uh, of course, everybody's going going to heaven and so on. So, so there's so that reflects also, you know, a diminishing of the sense of sin. I mean, I think that has contributed, of course, over time to the loss of uh, the significance of the sacrament of... Yeah, and even if you don't believe that most people are going to hell, you probably would, should still believe that most people are going to purgatory, and hence right. there's still a need for a funeral mass and, and all that. Well, here's, a, here's another thing. I always, in the, in the four Eucharistic prayers... At the, towards the end. By the way, not, not to interrupt you, you don't say a funeral mass for somebody who's in hell. You say a funeral mass for somebody who's in purgatory. Right. <laughs> or, right, of course. So, at, in each of those Eucharistic prayers, uh, in one way or another, a distinction is made between those who have died in the hope of Christ, those who have died in the hope of the resurrection, from those who we pray are under the mercy of God. Yeah. Uh, so my point is that uh, the, e even in the liturgy, the church is making a distinction. Not everybody dies in the hope of the resurrection. 
explicitly right. dying in the hope of the resurrection. Now, what do we say about those who haven't died in the hope of the resurrection in so uh, to the to the extent that we know? Well, we still pray for them, it says. We we pray for we 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 commend them to God's grace and mercy, I say to people. Um uh, but uh but the liturgy there, those Eucharistic prayers, they're not open to the idea of universalism, all men are saved, etc. Because if you Right, right. Of course, because it it makes the distinction between sufficiency and efficacy. Yeah. yeah and you and, know, and to be clear, I'm not and you're not claiming that that Bishop Schneider holds to all of these sorts of extreme no, views. No, no, no. And and that Bishop Schneider, for example, doesn't believe that even in our non-dignified state, non-baptized, that we still don't maybe have a sense of the divine or a, a, right. a religious questing after God. And because he, uh, Bishop well, Schneider he does, does affirm, that. he does affirm natural religion. Yes, I'm he affirms that we all have this natural religious sort of uh, instinct or impulse, whatever. Although I assume he would reject the De Lubakian claim that that we all have a natural desire for union with God as our final end of our of our nature. I don't think he would probably agree with that. But do you, do you happen to know what uh, what page or because? No, I, know he, I don't. I don't you know. He, I thought I, I, I bookmarked it, but uh, but I guess I didn't. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he does refer like what you say, natural religion. Um, but um, I don't remember. Ex well, what he says, it's in the section where he's dealing with non-Christian religions or even Judaism, for example, even. And he goes, look, obviously, there can be some kind of knowledge of God that can bring certain graces your way via the pathway of a kind of natural religion. Right. But, he says, that is via the path of natural religion, that other religions as such, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, those religions are deceptions, satanic deceptions, they're illusions, and in and of themselves, in their religious constructions, can offer no knowledge of God, no pathway to grace. Okay, I remember now. now this, go he's, ahead. He's citing from... Uh... Uh, he's citing from uh, Paul the Sixes, even Jaili Nutiandi, where yes. Paul says that they, you know, these other religions, they have their arms outstretched to God, but 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 God doesn't hear. There, there's no objective reference, regardless of the the integrity, right. of the subjective act, and all that. But they don't reach uh, the objective reality of God. Here, here's where. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to think. What what was the point you were making just now about? Well, the uh, point that 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 there's no there's no knowledge of God or grace that comes to us from God through the religious constructions as such of other religions. That whatever comes to people in terms of grace uh, outside of Christianity comes to them via the path of natural religion, not yeah. through the action. So, in other words, a Hindu might have certain might have salvific grace from God, but that salvific grace is not coming through Hinduism at all. Right. right. At all. It's coming through something else, but not through the constructions of Hinduism, which are themselves merely deceptions. Okay. Now, I think now, that's I, I don't think the two in my view, I don't think the two follow. I don't think if a member the if a man is uh I always say you have to distinguish between the question, uh, can you be saved apart from the works of Christ? And I say no. 
Can you be saved from apart from explicitly responding to the works of Christ? And I say, possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Uh, it uh, and and so I defend the kind of an a kind of accessibilism where the individual under certain conditions is able to uh, is able to attain salvation. But that salvation is through the work of Christ. It's it, right. I don't think right. you're saved through Buddhism or anything of that sort because no. that re that really com contributed. Um, that really contributed. I remember the first time I went to my wife's parish some thirty five years ago in Howell, uh, Michigan, and the priest had a totally distorted view of Lumen Gentium sixteen, and he was saying you can yeah. be saved as a a good atheist, a good Buddhist, and even a good Jew or a good Hindu, whatever. So uh, that that's that's real out there. It seems to me if we're talking about. But go ahead. Yeah, I just. But the point I'm trying to make though is this: is that uh, it's a point I made with Matthew Ramage. There seems to be a disparagement here, though, of the of the ability of God to speak to human beings, precisely through the sort of mythopoetic imagination of, of religious constructions. I mean, C.S. Lewis makes this point: How does God's revelation get into us? Well, it comes to us in our moral conscience. It comes to us through the Jews, ultimately in specific revelation. But also, he calls it comes to us through what Lewis calls good dreams, and what he means is mythopoesis. Right. Well, and, and therefore, I, I what I see in Bishop Schneider is an attempt to simply say that the religious imagination, the mythopoetic imagination of human beings, as expressed in various religions around the world, has no value whatsoever right. of any kind. Right. It is to simply be. Re so let me use an example of interreligious dialogue where I would say, yes, all truth comes through Christ. All salvation comes through Christ. All grace comes through Christ. But there might be, as the father said, logoi spermaticoi mm -hmm. in these other religions, points of analogical right. context. So, for example, right. I, I once had a conversation with a Hindu and we were talking about uh, reincarnation. And I mentioned to the Hindu that based on his concept of the law, and this, by the way, was a Hindu priest at a Hindu temple in Edison, New Jersey. His name is Arun. And I said to him, you know, your concept that what you're doing in various reincarnations is working off the bad karma that you accumulated morally in a previous life is somewhat similar to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, where you have to, in a sense, pay pay your dues for the consequences and effects of your of your sins. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I thought about that. And he goes, I think you're exactly right, that right. there is some small point of contact here between the two ideas. Now, is reincarnation to be accepted? Heck no. no. It's all kinds of problems right, theologically. Right. But the point is, it was a point of entry. And right. it was, a, I could say, at least to the Hindu, you're at least acknowledging that right. our moral failings in this life right. have, have spiritual and eternal consequences. Right, right. Now, I agree with that. And I would add to this, this I, I distinguish, uh, I don't accept the idea that Bishop Schneider seems to be suggesting that all these other religions are just uh, deceptive, uh, the work of the devil, etc., etc. I'm not sure he says the work of the devil, but certainly deceptive and, and all of that. I account for those elements of truth and goodness that you might find in these other religions through general revelation. God has not left right. himself without witness. And and hence uh and hence we can't say uh we can't or even the reformed tradition talks about common grace, you know, it's not a saving grace. 
but it still has ultimately it has its its roots in Christ and so on. So I I can look if I'm going to have a conversation with a Muslim, uh, and and I you know I read the Quran, I'm not going to be surprised that there are fragments, seeds of truth. Yeah, there, exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. But that's because of God's general revelation. I don't think general revelation is a saving revelation. Uh, but I, but at, 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 on the no. other hand, on the other hand, I, I do think that there can be those fragments of truth there. Well, and my point was simply this, and I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I think we're on the same page here. My point is that in general revelation, out of which flows a sort of natural religiosity, I think Bishop Snyder draws too neat and clean a distinction between the natural religiosity that we get from general revelation and the other religions of the world in their various constructions. Right, right. There can be an analogical, Father uh, uh, yeah. Guarino argues for that, that there can be an analogical relationship. Right, exactly. Well, so can, now we're simply arguing, I guess, about... When myth becomes fact, says Lewis. Oh, you know, yeah, oh, all that. Right. That's that's all my right. point. All right. And that's, I would just, if yeah, Bishop sure. Schneider were here, I'd love to have a conversation with him about that, about yeah, what yeah, do you yeah, mean exactly, by this? Exactly. What do you, because I'll tell you what, and, and we're sort of running out of time, but I sure, want to make... Sure. I make one a point here that that's that I think is important, and, and it's this. Ultimately, the reason why I'm spending some time talking about this is that even though I've tried to steal man Bishop Schneider's fears and mm-hmm. that they're legitimate in many ways, I do ultimately think that this book, as a catechism, has some dangers. Right. And one of the dangers is this. If you combine his rejection of religious freedom with his concept that the non-baptized do not have full human dignity, and with his concept that other religions of the world really are mostly, we can argue about percentages, mostly just deceptions. Right. I think what you have there is a really bad picture, right? Mm, That's not a good look. All right. And and it's fraught with certain dangers that we have seen from our own Catholic past. Uh, So anyway, I don't know. I I just know. I agree with all that. I think that's right. Um, um, he, I don't know who he spoke to. I, I can't believe that he actually sat down and wrote all this himself. So, uh, I mean, he's a smart guy, but I, I, I don't see that happening. But, but I don't know who he talked to. But you're right. This can only sort of uh, galvanize the, the, um, you know, the, the knockers. Uh, you know, what's his name? Charles Taylor wrote a book once called the uh, on ethics and the malaise. And he's and he talks about the uh, uh, the knockers and the boosters, you know. And so you have plenty of knockers of Vatican II uh, who don't accept it and uh, and who yeah. want to bid farewell to it uh, uh, and so on. And then you have the boosters, and I'm a booster. I think you're a booster, but that doesn't mean that we don't have questions. That oh yeah, mean, I just posted a that, I just posted a blog post today that had some critical things to say about Vatican too. So right. yeah, and it can have. I'm, and that's my, my complaint with Bishop Schneider isn't that he complains about Vatican too. Anybody can do that. You're free to do that. Right. It, it's just I don't agree with his complaints. Right. I don't agree. I with think they're the wrong right. ones to make. I think they're right. the wrong ones. Even to Even if in practice we see religious indifferentism, subjectivism, a culture of universalism, right. and right. so all of that is real. But you and I agree that we don't we don't blame Vatican II on that. I never accept the I never accepted the idea that that the documents of Vatican II are rich in intentionally in a in a kind of a deceptive way so that you can accommodate a variety of viewpoints. I yeah. think you have to have 
an interpretive uh, approach to those documents that see them in their historical context, uh, see them, in fact, in continuity with, like on the question of religious liberty, uh, you know, with 19th century popes who rejected religious liberty, or even the question of ecumenism, there's a measure of continuity every, uh, between motalium animus of 31 yeah. and everything that Pius XI yeah. rejected about ecumenism, uh, Vatican II still rejects. But Vatican II yeah. asked the question, what is ecumenism? Yeah, and what is, yeah, and so I want to be clear when I say I have no problem with Bishop Schneider criticizing certain aspects of Vatican II. I agree with that, but I also don't think a bishop of the Catholic Church should be rejecting. That's teachings. exactly. There's an important difference there. Reject and I don't reject any teaching of the Second Vatican Council, even though mm -hmm. I have some questions about aspects of, course. of it. You What's know, his and, name? Ratzinger said in one of his last addresses, Benedict said he thought Nostra Tate was a great document, but where he criticized it was that it was too positive, he said, about other religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can. And I think I think I it think was too. True. And I think it was too positive about the state of modern culture. That's you know, also true. You know, and you modern liberal democracy was this wonderful thing. Right, so, right. Yeah. And given where we are now in our culture about of you know free speech and an open forum for discussion and so on, I think it was probably too optimistic about that that you could then have a reasoned conversation since all men have these intellectual obligations for believing yeah. the act of believing that you, you could have a reasoned conversation in the public forum. And that's, well, that's, 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 that's not happening now. You know, you can't go yeah. to university, uh, whether it's a, you know, whether it's Harvard or Columbia yeah. or wherever, and actually uh, give a, a, a discussion, a defense of uh, yeah. pro-life or whatever. No, they're going to yell at you, scream at you. Yeah, I like to say that the council suffered from a double naivete. It had a naivete about the, the relative strength, the internal strength of the faith life and the culture of the Catholic Church in the West right. up to that time. And also, and, of, of and then it had a naivete about modern culture, right, about right. that you could just all the culture was just waiting breathlessly for the Catholic Church to enter a dialogue with it, and that's right, just right. not true no, either. That, uh, no, no, no. And, and it was wrong on both counts, but yes. that doesn't mean that it's doctrinal affirmations, it's theology, and so are therefore to be rejected. It just means it had some blind spots, you know, right, about right. about culture primarily. Right, right, right. It tells us to read the signs of the times, but I don't think it was very good at reading. No, the very signs. good at reading. But the other thing is that they tried to Bishop Schneider and others sympathetic to to his approach here. They tried to dismiss um, the council by certain aspects of the councils, like the, uh, the decree on ecumenism and Nostritate, as these were just prudential judgments. You, you see, and so the yeah. the council wasn't intent on making any doctrinal statements and blah blah blah. So so they don't feel. If you were to ask him, which has which has which is normative, uh, uh, what is it? The Pius XI's uh, Mortalium Animus, where he rejects ecumenism, or the Decree on Ecumenism of uh, the Vatican II, or even thirty years later, John Paul II's uh, yeah. And I, I'm sure he would say, Mortalium Animus of Pius XI, and that these other the decree in ecumenism, John Paul, these were just, these are not doctrinal 
These are just pastoral judgments, and you're free to reject pastoral judgments. Yeah, that's I think that is comes, what it, I think yeah. that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think it does, and uh, we can have that debate. But anyway, we, we right. should probably uh, yeah, we've we been should. at this oh, yes, almost uh, yeah, about an hour and a half, hour and twenty five, whatever it is. Oh, uh, we could we could do a follow up if we want yes. at a yes, future yes. time. Eduardo, you know, thank you so much. My pleasure, uh, Larry. Always a pleasure to. Uh, to have these conversations with you. Yeah, and thanks to everyone for listening. Okay. <laughs>